When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, welcome back to Thick and Thin with me, Katie Bilotti. No surprise there. It's not like it's going to be someone else. (laughs) I always like kind of cringe when I say the intro because I'm like, wait, I mean, obviously it's me. I feel like I just don't even need to say it. It's like redundant to be like, okay, here's my podcast uh, that you clicked on. So you obviously know what podcast you're listening to, whatever. Anyway, but I will say, I do want to say, um, I appreciate that because that is the intro and I say my first and last name, like fully pronounce it and everything. A lot of you guys that have been following me for years and just didn't know how to say my last name. It isn't like the trickiest last name in the entire world, but when you read it, there's a lot of different ways you could take it. So me saying it, like verbalizing it, being like Bilotti has helped you guys to like internalize that, remember that. So when people are like introducing me now, no one really mispronounces my name. Like it's really nice, honestly, because I've always just like had to really be like, it's Bilotti, like Pilates, please don't mess it up. I actually, fun fact, when I was walking across the stage at graduation, my senior year of college, they mispronounced my last name. And it really haunts me to this day because I did everything in my power to make sure that my name would be pronounced correctly. Like I, they give you these cards, at least in college, and you have to, you know, spell out your name phonetically. So for Katie, for example, it was like K-A-Y-T-E-E. And then for Bilotti, I like really sounded it out and like wrote it out. So like even if someone didn't know me because the professors that were reading the names, like a few of them didn't know me. I think one of them did. There was like three professors and two of them didn't know who I was and one of them did. And obviously when it came down to it, the person that read my name didn't know me. But anyway, the day arrived and I walked across the stage. I was really trying my very best to not trip in the shoes I was wearing. I was a little bit mimosa buzzed because we drank some mimosas before graduating. I think that's like pretty standard. I wasn't going to do that sober. (laughs) Anyway, so walk across the stage and lo and behold, they said my name wrong. They said Katie Belote. Katie Belote. It will haunt me forever. Because bloat to me just sounds like bloated. And as I was walking across the stage and heard this, like my first thought was like, what's my grandma going to think? Because my grandma gets really heated about things like this. And then also second thought was like, wow, I hope I marry into a family someday with a guy that has a decent to pronounce last name, like not extremely difficult to pronounce. And if it's harder to pronounce than mine, I mean, that just tells me all I need to know. Like, I need to keep my last name. And I'm, like, kind of on the edge of, like, wanting to keep my last name because I do like it when it is pronounced correctly. And I like just the way it sounds. Anyway, I digress. I bet you didn't think when you clicked on this episode that you'd be hearing a three-minute rant about my my last name being mispronounced at graduation. But you know what? Life is full of surprises. Anyway, so today's episode, let's get into the real meat of what we're chatting about today, 
two different areas for storytelling, okay? We got one that involves a personal story, something that happened to me yesterday, a very classic, like just New York story. And the reason why I want to tell it, it's not like a completely developed story, but I want to manifest the end of the story happening because I don't want to like give it away yet because we're going to get into it, but I want to kind of introduce first and like be all elusive and whatever. Um, but basically it's kind of like a miniature love story, but um, it, it definitely needs some developing. Like I need to continue the story and I need you guys to give me the confidence to do so. So I'm going to tell you the first half and then we're going to manifest the rest. Okay. So that is the first story. Very classic New York story. Second, we're going to talk about the life and legacy of Princess Grace, or I guess that's kind of shortening her title. She's like a many, a many titles, but <laughs> one of them is Her Serene Highness, Princess Grace of Monaco. Imagine being called like Her Serene Highness, Princess Katie of Manhattan. That is pretty epic. Or Grace Kelly, to those who know her from her time as a Hollywood actress, before leaving the silver screen in the dust at just 26 years old forever. So yeah, as we know her, we've probably heard the Sparknotes version of her life, you know, through various Instagram accounts or just through just, you know, being in the know about certain figures from history. Grace Kelly essentially left her Hollywood career to marry into royalty And there's a lot of things involved in that decision that I just had no idea about. And I had no idea just various details of her life that have just been either blown out of proportion and dramatized to the point where they aren't even truthful anymore. So I decided to take it upon myself to really dig and research her life and find out like little tidbits and things that weren't previously known about her, you know, by the masses. And so we're going to tell the true story, the true life and legacy of Princess Grace today. So that is our second matter of business. But our first, like I said, is actually what I like to call the AC unit love story. Yes, it is a very classic New York love story, the AC unit love story. So get ready for it. Like I said, it's kind of like half-baked and I want to like manifest the rest of it, but you'll see what I what I mean by that. So anyway, I'm just going to tell this story from memory. I don't have any of this written down. You guys know a lot of times I do kind of map out what I'll be saying in the podcast because I'm usually talking about things that require research and I don't want to mess it up. But with this one, this is my story to tell. Uh, so I'm just going to ad-lib it. So basically, let's take things back in time about three days ago. Um, It was like 90 degrees in the city, and I had just ordered this AC unit, this window AC unit, because my unit here, my apartment, doesn't have central air, which honestly, pretty big buzzkill, but it's pretty standard for Manhattan apartments because a lot of them were built you know, pre-war, and it would just be too costly to put in central air, so people just get window units, which I'm totally fine with. I've had window units in each of my apartments here and it hasn't been a huge issue, but usually my dad will put it in for me when I first move in because I've always had a summer lease, but because I have a spring lease now, I didn't have to put a unit in in the spring because it was cold and whatever. So I have to do it on my own, which I am perfectly capable of doing, but the one thing I'm not capable of doing is when it arrives, getting it into the window without significant stress that it's going to fall onto the sidewalk below. So my unit was delivered a few days ago, like on the hottest day of the freaking summer, I swear to God, or it's not even summer, the spring. It's like 95 degrees on whatever day this was, like three days ago. And 
the unit was delivered and I, you know, called Best Buy because that's where I purchased it from and they were going to send a technician to put it in the window for me, the whole thing. And turns out the guy couldn't come for a few days. So I was like kind of heartbroken and sweaty for the whole weekend. And I was like, you know what? It's fine. I can survive. Like at least I have a cold shower. Like it's going to be okay. I can, you know, stop complaining. It's going to be okay. So basically the unit just sat in my lobby and I wasn't like super bothered by this. Like I was kind of okay with it just sitting down there. I mean, people in my, my building leave things down there all the time. And I was like, not too concerned that it was going to get taken or anything. Cause I live in a secure building and like whatever. So I wasn't extremely bothered. Also, I was like excited to have a nice fun weekend with my friends and like just spend as little time as possible in the apartment because again, super hot and I have no air conditioning. So I just left it there. I wasn't too bothered. I checked on it every so often, like Sunday night, I checked on it, made sure it was still there because I knew that the guy was coming Monday morning and it was still there. So everything was fine. Wake up Monday morning to a call at like 8 a.m. on the dot from the technician saying he's like 10 minutes away. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to go make sure the unit is still there because for some reason I just had this like intuition that it wasn't going to be there. I just like knew I had like that female intuition moment where I was like, I just have a feeling lo and behold, get down there. It's not there. And I'm just like standing there staring and I'm like, wait a second. I swear it was there this weekend. I swear it was there. And I'm like, maybe it was someone else's. Cause I like remember checking the label, but I don't remember like super vividly making sure it was like for me. I remember seeing it was from Best Buy, but I didn't know. So I was like, maybe it wasn't for me. And then I was like, no, it definitely was. Like I was like going back and forth in my head doing that thing. And so I ended up calling the guy back and I was like, hey, sorry, I, I was wrong. I like thought that it was delivered, but truly it wasn't delivered. So you're going to have to come back another time, like whatever. And he was like totally cool about it. And I checked my email. Lo and behold, it says it was delivered on Friday. So I was right. It was delivered and it was somehow gone when I went down there to check on it. So I call my super and I'm like, hey, this expensive unit was stolen from the lobby. Like, can you just check the the cameras? Because we have all these cameras and stuff. So he was like, yeah, of course, I'll check the cameras and see what happened. Because it was like around a ton of other boxes. And like, for some reason, only that was taken. And I'm like, it's really heavy. So like, who would go through the effort of taking that? I don't know. But like my cynical self was thinking, okay, there's no way someone's either going to return it or like, I thought for sure it was gone forever. Or like, I don't know. I just like wasn't thinking that the super was going to be able to figure out who, who, who took it or like how to get it back or things like that. So I was kind of just like, okay, I'm, you know, I'm out of luck here. I got to call Best Buy and figure out how they can bring me a new unit and like, believe me when I say that I don't have it, I'm not trying to profit or like whatever. So I was like dealing with all that, but I'm like, okay, I'll deal with that in a second. I have work to do. So I'm sitting at my desk, like doing work and just trying to not think about how horribly my Monday is going. And all of a sudden I hear a knock at the door. And it wasn't, I like was expecting an Amazon, um, like fresh, like Whole Foods delivery, but it wasn't coming until later in the day. So I was like kind of thinking it might've been that just like super early, but I'm like, I didn't get any texts. So, like, I don't think it's that. So I go to the door and I look through the people because I always do that. Word to the wise ladies, always look through the people. You never know who's going to be there. And I'm just, I watch way too much criminal minds. You guys know this. I just like always picture an ax murder or something. So I open the people, I look out and it's a boy, like a boy. Okay. A cute looking boy. And I can't tell if there's like anything, like I can only really see a certain distance with the people. 
So I open the door and I'm like, okay, well, first of all, I take my hair out of my greasy ponytail and I fluff up my, uh, my outfit a little bit because I was like sitting in my workout clothes. And then I open the door and I look down and my AC unit is sitting on the, um, the doormat like outside. And this guy is like looking super apologetic. Literally, guys, cutest freaking hot piece of man that I've ever seen. <laughs> I just like struggled there. Hot guy standing outside my door with my AC unit on the ground. And I'm like, oh my God, uh, stop apologizing. Well, I was thinking in my head, like you could hit me with your car and I would say, thank you so much. Like that's the kind of guy I was dealing with here. I was full on flustered, like stumbling over my words, like couldn't, but the guy also was, I could tell he kept reiterating the same things. He like comes in, like brings it inside, puts it on the ground, like amazing muscles. Like everything was going for him. Everything was working in his favor. I was not at all upset that the guy had taken my, my AC unit and I had to go a few days without air conditioning, I would do it again to see this guy. Okay. So I know he brings it in, he puts it on the ground and he's like, Oh, you know, do you want me to put it in for you? Like I can help you install it. I feel so bad. Like he's like profusely apologizing. And I'm like, no, no, no. Like his classic, I can't accept any sort of favors and I have to do everything myself or like, you know, I just can't accept things like that. I don't know what I just like. It's like a knee jerk reaction for me to be like, no, 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 I got it. I'll handle it. Like I'll figure out what to do. Although I'd already canceled my technician and I'm like, oh my God, what do I have to do? Or how do I do this? I'm like, okay, I'll just like call a task rabbit or something. Cause I am so flustered by this guy being in here. And so anyway, I like really took in. I was like, he's like, oh, I'm new to the building. And I'm like, oh, you are new to the building. I have not seen you around before. Like I was like trying to come up with like cute things to say, but like on the spot, I'm really horrible at any sort of, like I had so many questions I could have asked to see if he was single, to see if he had moved in here with his, I don't know, hot girlfriend. Don't really know, have no details. But anyway, he was like, oh, my name is, and he said his name. We're going to call him AC unit boy. Um, cause this is the AC unit love story, obviously. And so it was a really great meet cute. And I just need to manifest guys. We all need to collectively manifest that I will run into him like later this week or like preferably when I'm looking good and not coming back from the gym. Like I really want it to be a time where I just like look awesome and I just like run into him and I'm like, Oh, Hey, how did it work out? Cause like he accidentally had delivered the AC unit to his old building. So he was like talking to me about that. And I'm like, okay, I didn't ask, but like, you can tell me anything and I would listen. And I just want to like have the opportunity to like be in the elevator with him and be like, oh, how did it go with like your other unit or like ask him some sort of question or something. And like, I just know it's probably going to be months before I see this guy again. So like, how do I figure this out? And you do some intense creeping. I was like, how do I, <laughs> I was like texting my friends. I'm like, how do I like just casually, but not casually at all run into him again. Because I think the love of my life is like under the same roof as me right now in this very moment, probably hopefully not listening to me through some sort of like, what if he came in here again? I watch way too much criminal TV. What if he came in here and like bugged the place and now he's like listening to me talk about him? Like very well could be. Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs and projects done well. Let me tell you, there's the version of it where you try to do something at home, and then there's a version of it where you have someone help you, you watch them do it the right way, and you go, thank God I didn't try to do that myself. I have fully done things around the home that I think look good, and then a bang in the night, and I wake up to a shelf collapsing, a painting falling off the wall. Like it, I've, I've seen it all go south. I own a home, and I can tell you... 
I know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, you can Angie that and connect with skilled professionals to get the project done well. Right now, one of my wish lists is I want a bike for my condo in Milwaukee and I would love to rig it up on a pulley in the ceiling because I have one of those like lofted ceilings, but I'm so scared to try that on my own. Angie has 20 years of home experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com. Anyway, but if you're wondering, the AC unit is actually still sitting on the floor and I need to get someone to install it. So that's like a whole nother thing. But I'm really honestly not mad about how all of these events transpired. Like I'm really not upset about it. Um, my only regret is like, I wish I did ask him to install it so I could have AC. Um, and then also, so like I could talk to him more and like check out his muscles a little bit more. But anyway, uh, that is my, um, New York, just an average Monday in New York. And I will let you guys know, uh, what happens with that. I think it is time that we get into the life and legacy of Grace Kelly. I think she's somewhere floating above listening to us talk about, air conditioning love stories. And I was like, okay, Katie, get with the program. Talk about my life now. So it's time. Let's get into it. Grace Kelly only made 11 feature films in her very short career that lasted just five years from 1951 to 1956. And yet she was a Hollywood icon. She was a household name, loved by many, hated by quite a few as well, but mostly revered for her film talent and the way that she eventually dazzled as the princess of Monaco. However, many details about Grace's life have been dusted in this layer of mystery all these years after her untimely death. A lot of rumors, a lot of falsities. And so I wanted to set the record straight and tell you guys the true story from what I've been able to find from hours and hours and hours of research. We'll be telling the true story of Grace Kelly today or as close to the truth as I possibly could get. So let's take it from the top. Grace was born on November 12, 1929, and she was born into a very wealthy Irish Catholic family in Philadelphia, spending her early days living in a mansion that reportedly had 17 rooms, and her family even had a chauffeur. Her family rose to wealth in the construction industry, and her father, John, was actually a gold medal winning oarsman, and her uncle was the playwright, George Kelly. But despite her family's wealth, Grace was soft and sickly as a child. Listen to what her mom said about her to the press. Once Grace was successful, she like was telling the press about how she was when she was young. And honestly, it's kind of like, I mean, I'm going to let you guys hear it, but like it's kind of just harsh. But she said in her teen years, Grace was nothing but a giggly somebody with a high nasal voice. She always has had trouble with her nose. And in her childhood winters, she had been a victim of one long sustained cold in the head. That gave her the peculiar voice. Her enjoyment of food gave her a little extra weight. And like her father, an athlete and entrepreneur, she was nearsighted, which made it necessary for her to wear glasses. All in all, she was nobody's princess charming in those days. Like I said, pretty harsh. I mean, I guess it's like, 
her kind of painting grace as like, oh, she's this success story that came from a whole different you know story. And she was never she was not always like this. But still, honestly, if my mom said something like this about me, I'd be like, mom, oh, my God, like what the <laughs> I would be very upset anyway. So to give you an idea of Grace's upbringing, and honestly, this really does shape the way that Grace just even went on to be as an adult. Her father preferred Grace's older sister, Margaret, nicknamed Peggy. And it was just very obvious to everyone in the family that Peggy was the favorite child. And he actually was talking to a magazine in January of 1955. And he said, I thought it would be Peggy whose name would be up in lights one day. Anything that Grace could do, Peggy could do better. And to give you an idea of timing when he said this to McCall's, which was a magazine, he said this in January 1955. So this was right before his least favorite daughter, Grace, got her Academy Award. So he still, knowing that Grace was successful in film and whatever, just like couldn't, couldn't like give her that. And was like, oh, like I always thought it would be Peggy. Like, I don't know. I don't, something about these parents is just like rubbing me the wrong way. But anyway, so Grace's two siblings, Peggy and John Jr., they actually eventually grew up to be pretty problematic people. They were both alcoholics and just struggled with various things. So Grace's dad was just really wrong about her. I mean, perhaps, I mean, we can always say that maybe the the pressure that he put on the, the other two kids like got to them and it's kind of unfortunate. It's kind of nice that Grace got to kind of slide under the radar, but still, I think a lot of the ways that Grace acted out in her later years was because she didn't have that support from her parents in her childhood. But that's just my uh my deduction. So, anyway, Acting was not encouraged by her parents in general, but seeing as though Grace was in no way the favorite child, I suppose they relented and let her pursue it. And so in 1947, before enrolling at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, which is where she would eventually study, and they actually charged $500 a year, which was a lot for the time. Uh, but before she, she got to being there, she moved to New York. She moved to New York where she lived as many promising young women with money did at the Barbizon Hotel for Women at Lexington and 63rd Street. And this elite dollhouse of a place, that's really what it was called in the time. They called it the dollhouse. It had its own reputation and mystery. And I want to do like a full podcast on the Barbizon Hotel. It's just like a really huge story because so many different famous women lived there. But I'll give you a little Spark Notes version of the hotel's history because it's honestly really, really interesting. So an article that I found by Vanity Fair calls the Barbizon Hotel the, quote, sorority on East 63rd Street because it was a women-only hotel that opened in 1927. So 20 years before Grace had arrived in the city, it was already going strong. And according to Vanity Fair, it attracted the single, stylish, and thoroughly modern women pouring into New York during the jazz age to chase their dreams, stardom, independence, a husband. And the article even said that, quote, if the Barbizon had a face, it was that of Grace Kelly. It was extremely difficult to get accepted at the Barbizon. It was actually like the hottest club in town for women. You needed letters of recommendation and money for that matter. And the rules regarding men in the building were super strict. They weren't allowed to go past the lobby unless they had like supervision. And so many young men eager to get upstairs and see what was going on up there disguised themselves as doctors because physicians were allowed to make house calls in the Barbizon. And this is how they got past security. So it's very elite, very like mysterious and interesting. 
And, you know, it was interesting, though, because it really didn't last too long. By the 70s, the once famous Barbizon was actually going down in flames. You know, women were sadly throwing themselves off the roof and there was a well-publicized murder that happened. But when Grace lived there in the 40s, it was the place to be. The girls that lived there had quite a time. Grace even reportedly did dancing numbers down the hall in just her underwear, which was absurd for the time. Uh, Maybe still is. I don't know. It depends. If I was like around all my friends, I might do things like that too. But at the time, Grace was rebellious and flirtatious. She really gave New York City a run for its money. But she was also driven. For the next two years, Grace would alternate between theatrical training and professional modeling, including some spots in TV commercials, one being for insecticide. And she was determined to be a star and prove her family wrong. Some could say it's a classic case of, you know, daddy issues. Honestly, no shame. Her parents really did not seem to value her when she was young, specifically her father. One can assume that Grace just felt very seen. At the Academy, she did amazing things while she was there studying, you know, stage and acting and things like that. And she was, like I said, very, you know, determined to figure out what needed to be fixed about her in order for her to become a star. And so at the Academy, they noted that she had a great stage presence, but her speaking voice was nasally and, quote, improperly placed. So she sought to fix it. It's rumored that she even put a clothesline peg on her nostrils to try and mask the sound of her chronic sinusitis. Even after just her first year, Grace's manners, her mannerisms, and her posture had completely changed. And she also shed her Philadelphia accent, and she spoke in this lower, gentler tone of voice that apparently almost sounded British. And she totally lost the nasally sound that she'd had since childhood. And when she went home back to her family, her loving family, she went home and they all made fun of her new way of speaking. But Grace said to them, quote, I must talk that way for my work. She worked on a lot of smaller stage projects before she was eventually launched into the Hollywood scene. And as they were negotiating her contract with MGM after her first hit film, Grace had a number of personal requests, most accepted by the studio, because, you know, she was very particular with how she was represented in the press from the very beginning. She was very careful. She hardly ever did interviews, and she was also super protective over her look. She insisted upon looking, quote, as close to her natural self as possible in all films. She didn't want heavy makeup like Audrey Hepburn. She wanted to stay very true to herself, which I honestly admire. She like really pushed for just parts of her contract to reflect that. And the only thing though that she was flexible with, you know, appearance-wise was her hair, which was lightened considerably. Like her hair was really this like darker blonde naturally or like kind of borderline brunette, kind of reddish but it was always lightened to intensify its blondness in the various color films that she was in. But she was, that was like kind of all that she allowed in the appearance department. Um, But very much like Catherine Hepburn, she, you know, I definitely listened to my episode on her if you haven't already. We talked about her a few episodes ago. Grace was very much in control of her image and she was blunt about what she liked and what she didn't like. Her image was everything to her. One of her requests, however, wasn't accepted. The studio's head of talent, Lucille Ryman Carroll, said, according to Offscreen.com, she told me it was very important for her to choose her own roles. I told her that we never allow that, that we always chose roles for our contract players, 
and that those roles were designed to make them top-notch stars. Grace said to me, but I'm afraid that you might put me in something that doesn't suit me. I told her, don't worry about that, my dear. We can be trusted to put you in roles that will enhance your career. Both things, though, if you like kind of rethink those uh, those kind of exchanges between Grace and this studio head of talent, like she's saying like, yeah, honey, don't worry. We'll pick good roles for you to be a star, for us to profit off you, basically. Not saying like, oh, we're going to help, you know, make sure your, your image is intact. No, no, no. We're going to enhance your career. We'll make you a top-notch star. So Grace did have some, you know, some hiccups, some back and forth with MGM throughout her career. But I think just Grace at this point, being someone who was rejected by her own family as a child and just worked her butt off to get to a point where she could be accepted, was just deathly afraid of sinking back into a place where she wasn't favored. She wasn't loved. She was this awkward child that put on some pounds and had a nasally voice. She just wanted to make sure she didn't go back there, I think. And so it makes a lot of sense when you hear Grace talk about her insecurities. According to a 2009 New Yorker piece, Grace said this about her appearance. She said, quote, I was in the two category, T-O-O, for a very long time. I was too tall, too leggy, too chinny. I remember that a director kept yelling, she's perfect. What I love about this girl is that she's not pretty. Which honestly, pausing for a moment, this infuriates me for so many different reasons. But also I just like don't, I don't get it. Because whenever I look at a photo of Grace Kelly, I like just stare at her face. And I'm like, she is the prettiest person, like the most symmetrical face I've ever seen. So I do not understand where this person was coming from. But anyway, it was really important to Grace and obviously many of us in this world to be liked. She was seen as a safer actress, you know, lacking the outward, obvious sex appeal when put next to prominent blondes of the time like Marilyn Monroe. And a little unrelated yet somewhat related aside about Marilyn and Grace. So shortly before Grace's wedding, which we'll get to eventually, Marilyn was said to have written an incredibly cryptic letter to Grace. This is Marilyn Monroe. She said, quote, I'm so happy you found a way out of this business. Very cryptic indeed, very spooky considering Marilyn's eventual fate and how Hollywood really affected her. But anyway, so people were pretty split about Grace's sex appeal or lack thereof, which was apparently the most pressing thing to Hollywood studios at the time, and some can argue still to this day. So this 20th century Fox executive uh, was considering Grace for a very, you know, a certain role in a certain film and said, quote, she's got no sex, which honestly, like a lot of this is just like classic men, men in Hollywood, like 30, 40 years ago. But Alfred Hitchcock, who would go on to work with Grace on you know, multiple films and really loved and appreciated her, he disagreed with that unnamed studio exec. He cast Grace in a few of his films, like I said, and he really saw something in her. And this is what he said about her and her sexuality. He said, the subtlety of Grace's sexuality, her elegant sexiness appealed to me. And he said this to biographer Donald Spoto. He said, quote, that may sound strange, but I think that Grace conveyed so much more sex than the average movie sex pot. Poor Marilyn Monroe had sex written all over her face, and Bridget Bardot isn't very subtle either. These actresses generally make bad films. Do you know why? Because without the element of surprise, the scenes become meaningless. With Grace, you had to find out. You had to discover it. So honestly, interesting quote. On one hand, I like that he seemed to veer from the usual technique of using women 
solely as sex symbols in movies and being super obvious about it, dressing them to please the male gaze and those things. But I also feel like he's really discounting Marilyn and Bridget in this quote, you know, dissing two very successful women in a male-dominated industry. Like, I thought they did exceptionally well in the films that they were cast in for the roles they were given. I don't know. That's just my opinion. I also do think it's not really their fault. The women, I mean, they were given these roles by directors and, you know, screenplay writers, and it, it wasn't like really up to them. Like they were given these roles and they were told to be these sexual people on screen. Anyway, those, those are just my two cents. But I do think that this whole concept really did give way to our modern girl next door character in, you know, this century's films. Like I remember in the early 2000s having like characters like, you know, the Hilary Duff and Amanda Bynes of the world were very much like, we're the tomboys in the beginning of the movie. And then by the end of the movie, we're like the belle of the ball and like everyone wants to be our girlfriend and like no one sees us in the beginning. And then all of a sudden they're like, whoa, I guess she was hot the whole time. Like definitely does uh, just kind of give me those vibes. But anyway, despite being vocal about what she wanted or didn't want in her studio contract, Grace supposedly didn't really complain about much. One of her co-stars, Cary Grant, was talking about Grace in 1956 to a reporter. He was talking about shooting a romantic thriller in France called To Catch a Thief, which is one of my favorite films. And we'll talk about that more in a few minutes. But Cary was saying, he said, we had a scene where I had to grab her arms hard while she was fighting me and push her against a wall. We went through that scene eight or nine times, but Hitchcock still wanted it again. Grace went back alone behind the door when the scene started And just by chance, I happened to catch a glimpse of her massaging her wrists and grimacing in pain. But a moment later, she came out and did the scene again. She never complained to me or Hitch about how much her arms were hurting. Putting her film career aside, literally and figuratively, let's talk about the most pivotal moment for Grace Kelly. The moment that would alter her life forever and ultimately being part of the reason that it was cut so short. I had been through several unhappy romances, Grace said. Although I'd become a star, I was feeling lost and confused. I didn't want to drift into my 30s without knowing where I was going in my personal life. The lost and confused part can be backed by a string of romances with fellow members of Hollywood, some married, some unmarried, some decades her senior. She really didn't have a preference. She didn't really have success either, though, with any of the men that she met along the way. She was called all of these names by other people in Hollywood, the wives of some of her co-stars. She was bad-mouthed in all ways you could assume or imagine. But then she met royalty. And even then, it wasn't fireworks right away. But it would prove to be enough for Grace. Enough for her to marry into a royal family and give up the one thing that she valued most, her career. While Grace was filming a Hitchcock film in the French Riviera, she met Prince Renier of Monaco. He had stepped up to assume the throne at just 26, which was five years prior to meeting Grace after his grandfather died. And meanwhile, Grace had just snagged the Best Actress Academy Award for the 1954 musical drama, The Country Girl. So both were highly publicized and super successful in their respective realms. It all came down to an impromptu photo op invitation that only happened due to a random conversation in a train car. This was how they met. So it was the spring of 1955, and some of the biggest names in film were boarding an overnight train from Paris to Cannes to attend the Cannes Film Festival. This was an annual tradition since 1946 or so. 
And Grace was one of those on this overnight train, although she almost didn't make the trip. She'd been busy with a lot of film work abroad and was not eager to return to Europe anytime soon. However, one of her friends slash magazine editors, Rupert Allen, convinced her to go. He said, you'll be so glad you did. She had no idea, though, how much her life would change in the 48 hours that would come after a seemingly normal train ride into Cannes. Grace, along with her friend Rupert, sat with Hollywood legend Olivia de Havilland, who would appear in 49 feature films throughout her career. She only recently passed away, actually. She was in Gone with the Wind, among other things. And Olivia's husband, Pierre Gallant, a French journalist. And honestly, it was kind of like a classic networking situation that just like happens among friends, but definitely just like to the next level because these are all famous friends. But basically... Grace was going on to play a princess in her next film called The Swan, and Pierre proposed. He's like, oh, you know, while you're here, how about you visit Monaco and meet my friend, this real-life prince, and we can bring some photographers and do a whole feature. And honestly, kind of sounds like a self-serving proposition for Pierre, because obviously having Grace in his magazine would be great for him, but Grace agreed anyway. But even after agreeing, though, on this train, like in this conversation, a string of events happened that almost got in the way of her actually meeting the Prince of Monaco. So when the train arrived in Cannes on Thursday, Pierre got to work. He you know, started making the proper arrangements with his photographers and set up a 4 p.m. meeting at the palace the very next day. But when the information was passed on to Grace, she declined the invite. You know, this has happened to me before. Like, I'll say yes to something and then I'll realize like, oh, wait, I kind of said yes in the heat of the moment of being asked. And I didn't realize that this just like wouldn't work with my other plans. So Grace realized that she had this cocktail event, you know, because she was there on a work trip. Like she was there to promote her film, The Country Girl. And she had this cocktail event at 530. And so meeting this prince, you know, this palace at 4 p.m. was just going to cut it too close. But Pierre was determined for this piece to run, so he didn't give up. He somehow worked with the palace to get the meeting moved to 3 p.m., so an hour earlier, and miraculously, Grace agreed to the meeting. But then tragedy struck. As soon as Grace stepped out of the shower the morning of the palace visit, things just went wrong. You know, the city had shut off all of its power due to a labor strike, so she gets out of the shower and realizes she can't blow dry her hair because there's no power. And so she's looking in the mirror. Her hair is dripping wet and her clothes are all wrinkled. She can't even use an iron to, you know, get the the wrinkles out of her clothes. And she had a decision to make to go unprepared or not to go. But Grace decided to get creative. She tied her hair back, pinned it up with some flowers and put on one of the dresses she'd packed that didn't require ironing. Like, but one of them she's worn like a million times before and it like wasn't the most expensive dress, but she put it on. And the elevators were also down because of the outage. So she ran down the stairs and met Pierre. But unfortunately, more bad luck ensued. On the way there, they got into a minor car accident, reportedly with paparazzi that were following them. They had gotten a collision. And so this delay caused them to miss the prince. So upon arriving, Grace was actually given a tour of the 225-room palace without the prince. Luckily, though, as fate would have it, Prince Renier got there before Grace had to leave for her cocktail hour and offered to give her a tour of his private zoo. This was when the prince, taking in Grace Kelly in all of her glory for the first time with her self-done hair and natural charm, realized that he had a little thing for her. 
Once Grace got to the press event after her palace experience, she apparently appeared to be enchanted, according to others at the party. But the sparks felt by Prince Franier seemed to be pretty one-sided. After all, at the time, Grace was reportedly engaged to a fashion designer named Oleg Cassini, according to The Hollywood Reporter. But they reportedly kept in touch, the prince and Grace, and the prince more so just really refused to let her go. So Grace ultimately broke off her engagement to the fashion designer at one point after the palace meeting, and Prince Frenier put in some work. He reportedly went to Philadelphia to spend a Christmas holiday with her family, and apparently after the meal, he did the dishes, which pretty huge for a prince that like has never done a dish probably his whole life. I mean, I'm kind of assuming, but he did the dishes. It's like very cute. Like, all guys doing the bare minimum. <laughs> Classic. But she also went to Monte Carlo to visit him in his 200-room pink palazzo. Only months after meeting Grace, Prince Frenier asked her to marry him, and she agreed. Her ex-boyfriend, Oleg, the fashion designer, reportedly told Grace, quote, One of the reasons I believe you're marrying this man is because this is the best script that you've ever received in your life. You will be a star for years to come. So kind of like a sarcastic, like, hope you're happy kind of thing to say. Pretty cold, but she went through with it anyway. The union of Grace and the Prince was dubbed, quote, the wedding of the century. The service was broadcast around the world with an audience of 30 million people watching. And Grace's dress, now famous, was designed by an Oscar-winning costume designer. And according to Vogue, it took 30 seamstresses six weeks to make using 300 yards of antique lace and 150 yards of taffeta tulle and silk. Biographer Wendy Lee claims that Prince Ranier had at least three mistresses within months of the wedding and that Grace was, quote, humiliated. But it's never been fully confirmed. And for some reason, I just like can't wrap my head around this. I mean, I know that he was considered a playboy and he was considered also very attractive. I've seen photos of him and I'm like, I don't think so. But to each their own. But apparently he was he was kind of called a playboy, called like a handsome guy. Um, But yeah, despite rumors and everything that, you know, the press was swirling and throwing at them, the couple had three children, Caroline, Albert and Stephanie. And their marriage lasted 26 years until Grace's death. And after she passed away, the prince never remarried. One of Grace's closest friends, Joan Dale, said, quote, I'm sure there were times in the early years when she felt somewhat like a prisoner in a gilded cage behind the palace walls. You know, we can assume that she probably felt a bit out of her element. You know, definitely being an actress and being this person that knows fame and knows wealth, it definitely wasn't like as large of a a jump and transition as it might be to someone like one of us that like doesn't know fame, doesn't know like, I don't know, extreme, extreme wealth. And so it definitely was a transition for her nonetheless, though. Like it's definitely just a bigger thing because like you deal with certain things in the press being a celebrity, like the different rumors, but being in the royal family, it just multiplies it so much more in a whole different way. I'm sure, you know, the likes of Meghan Markle can agree with that. But there was this quote that surfaced um, from a conversation that Grace had later in her life with one of her friends at lunch. She said, do you realize if my mother hadn't been so difficult about Oleg Cassini, I probably would have married him. So that was the fashion designer, like I just said. Um, How many wonderful roles I might have played by now? How might my life had turned out? The one decision 
to marry Prince Ranier of Monaco in 1956 changed my entire future. And that quote honestly gives me full body chills because it really just goes to show that one decision can alter the course of your life in so many ways. And this one decision for her to turn her back on Hollywood, to turn her back on this fashion designer boyfriend of hers, apparently she says it's due to her mother. I didn't know that previous, you know, in other accounts, it really didn't say that. But she claimed that, you know, her mother pushed her into the, the royal direction. Grace had a friend named Gwen who, after her death, gave a lot of details um, in this book. And she said that Grace had said to her one day when they were walking, quote, I so appreciate those times in my life when I was madly, desperately, and hopelessly in love. Those were the best of times. She continued, she said, I don't know that I ever had that with Ranye. However, I did have it with a few others, and it was marvelous. Although I did watch this movie last night. I watched this um, kind of dramatic account, but it was still mostly factual, I'm pretty sure, with Nicole Kidman. And she, um, I forget, what was it called? I think it was just like called Grace of Monaco, and it's on Hulu. Um, and in that movie, they really portrayed it like Grace did have a soft spot for Ranye. I don't think Grace would have married him if she didn't have any sort of feelings for him. But I think she realized maybe later on that were her feelings of, just being okay with it. Like she wasn't, you know, over the moon about this marriage, but she was okay with it. And there was probably other reasons for her deciding to do it. And maybe she was just like, this could be great. And she didn't consider that it could be the bad or the the wrong decision or something like that. But anyway, so in the early 60s, around four to six years after her wedding, Grace actually attempted to get back into film. Her friend, Alfred Hitchcock, wanted to cast her in one of his upcoming releases And she eagerly said yes, but after a string of events, a public outcry from many disapproving people in Monaco, political disputes, and sadly a miscarriage, Grace never ended up shooting the film, and it caused her to slip into a period of sadness. She would never appear on screen in a major film again, and she gave this rare interview to Playboy magazine, which was an interesting choice, I think, for her years later, and she just said simply, one has to choose in life. One of Grace's most famous film appearances was in this movie called To Catch a Thief, which I talked about earlier. It was released in 1955, and she was 26 at the time when she filmed this movie in France. It was one of her last films that she shot, and it was a romantic thriller about this retired jewel thief directed by Hitchcock, one of my absolute favorites. I won't spoil it, but there's this one scene in particular from that movie that all these years later just prickles the hairs on the back of my neck because Grace has seen you know, wearing these white driving gloves, a pale pink and white dress, a matching silk scarf tied around her neck. And she's driving this car on super windy roads in Monaco. And next to her in the passenger seat of the car is her love interest in the movie, Cary Grant, who is in his 50s at the time. And they were appearing calm and poised. Grace is whipping this car at about 100 miles an hour you know, just totally whipping it around turns, driving like a mad woman. And Cary Grant is just trying to keep his cool in the passenger seat, but he's visibly nervous. He's rubbing his hands on his pants and like appearing to be concerned about the car flipping over the side of the mountain because they are speeding, like absolutely whipping up this mountain. And Grace skillfully gets them to the lookout point in one piece without even one hair from her updo coming undone, I might add. And they set up a picnic and it's like a really famous, cute scene. And cut to September of 1982. This is about 27 years after the scene was shot. Grace was now 52 years old. She hadn't been 
in a Hollywood film in decades, but she still found herself on that same dirt road in Monaco where her character had sped around the bends, scaring Cary Grant half to death. But this time she was driving her 17-year-old daughter, Stephanie, to Paris where she was due to start at a new school. For some unusual reason, though, they had decided not to use a chauffeur for the trip. And this was weird because Grace, apparently, according to some sources, had never been a huge fan of driving and she normally liked to use a chauffeur. So the fact that she was behind the wheel on that fateful drive from the family's farm in France back to their palace in Monaco was kind of a surprise. It was only about 12 miles away, but the drive would actually take up to about 40 minutes because of how windy the roads are. And according to an article in the Chicago Tribune, their chauffeur pulled their green Rover 3500 around so they could load up the car. And Grace brought down an armful of dresses and laid them across the back seat. And a maid came with the rest of the stuff. And by the time all the things were loaded in the back, there just wasn't room for anyone. So I think it just made more sense for the two of them to you know, pile in the front and drive. So the events that would unfold on the road are still coded in a layer of mystery to this day. But according to reports, Grace took a sharp left turn on a steep mountain road, potentially due to a stroke or a series of strokes, sending her car tumbling down on a 120-foot slope. At some point prior to this, during the drive, Stephanie, so the daughter, recalled her mother saying she had a headache, and then it seemed as if she'd suffered a sudden pain and blacked out before the car went over the edge. Luckily, Grace's daughter, Stephanie, escaped with minor injuries, but Grace suffered a brain hemorrhage and never recovered. She was just 52. When word first got out about her tragic accident, her injuries didn't seem life-threatening, or at least weren't reported as such in the press. The first official announcement actually stated that she only had some broken limbs. And in fact, the severity of the issue was so covered up, so under wraps, that even palace staffers who were out on holiday at the time were told to continue their vacations, like it wasn't anything too serious. So the announcement, the official announcement of her death on September 14th was a shock to the entire world, practically. And eerily enough, she might have even predicted her own death. She'd once asked this famous Hollywood psychic, Frank Andrews, she said, I've always had this premonition that I'm going to die in a car crash. Will I? And he replied to her, he said, what I can say is that if you don't change your eating habits and your drinking, you could easily have a stroke. And that could happen in a car. Though Grace Kelly's legacy, beauty, and wit has lived on, one can only wonder what her life would have been if she had chosen a different path. She gave up her career, her five-year-long, which is very short, five-year-long film career for a man that she hardly knew. Perhaps the thought of joining the ranks of royalty blinded her, you know, coming from this childhood where she wasn't valued. Perhaps it was the words of her own mother. Or perhaps she thought it was the real deal that would save her from her mountains of insecurities. It's hard to say for certain, but Grace did get the chance to be a mother, which is something she treasured. And even though she rarely did interviews when she got older, she had this intimate chat with Pierre Salinger on June 22nd, 1982. So this was less than three months before her death, where also eerily he happened to ask her, he said, quote, I know it's much too early in your life to ask you this question. But at some point, somebody's got to ask you, how do you want to be remembered? After a pause, Grace said, I suppose I think mostly in terms of my children and their children, how they will remember me. I would like to be remembered as trying to do my job well, of being understanding and kind. 
I don't feel as though I achieved enough in my career to stand out more than many other people. I was very lucky in my career and I loved it, but I don't think I was accomplished enough of an actor to be remembered for that particularly. I'd like to be remembered as a decent human being and a caring one. And honestly, this whole story, Grace's life, you know, it just really makes me think about how important our choices really are. And so I thought to myself, like classic me being like, let me uh, think of this crazy Hollywood story and like, you know, equate it to my life. And so I was like, wait, what if I asked the guy with the AC unit to install it? And like we would have chatted and like, you know, or what if I would have asked like more questions or things like that? But you know what? Shoulda, coulda, woulda can't write our story. We continue on one foot in front of the other doing what feels right in the moment. That's all we can do. That's all that Grace did. And sure, there were points in her career where she, you know, wanted or her her life rather, where she wanted to return to film and things got in the way and she just thought that her story was over in that regard. And maybe it was. But I still do think that Grace, like, I still think that she she accomplished a lot. And even just in the legacies of her kids, she accomplished a lot. And yeah, I mean, the film that I watched on her, like the Nicole Kidman rendition was eye-opening as well, like made me realize just how badass Grace was. So definitely check it out on Hulu if you want to continue uh, hearing more about her story. It was kind of, it was more specifically focused on her life in Monaco, which was super interesting. She definitely helped the prince with a lot more than, you know, a lot of the accounts I read seemed to portray. Like she was, of course, you know, she was problematic to many of the people there because she was this Hollywood starlet and she you know, people didn't understand the union at first and things like that. But it really, again, points to the Meghan Markle marriage and things like that. So really interesting stuff. Hope you guys enjoyed this story. Again, I'm just like, it's just so tragic. It like makes, gives me full body chills thinking of the way that she passed and the way that it it just is so creepy how it happened in the same exact spot as this, this scene that she shot like 20 years prior. It's just so crazy how the world and just the way that she even predicted her own death. It's just so interesting. But anyway, may Grace Kelly rest in peace. Princess Grace of Monaco, may she rest in peace. And I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I will talk to you all next week. Bye. (laughs) 